Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Norman Horn, and we are going to talk about social justice. Should libertarian Christians care about social justice? This is a big issue in the church over probably the past decade or two, and I know a lot of Christians would say it's been an issue for them in their circles for even longer, but I grew up evangelical and started paying attention to this whole conversation about a decade and a half ago. And I, because a lot of evangelicals are starting to pay attention to social issues a little bit, a little bit more in the same way that the progressives were. And so there is sort of a movement afoot in the left of the Christian sphere, if you will. And they're, you know, all in favor of people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And there's just a lot of like, people are enamored with that side of politics. And I can understand that, that they're enamored with things that sound really good. Uh, But we need to talk about the broader topic, which is the issue of social justice. And social justice, we're going to have to define it here, but we, we do get this conversation a lot in, say, our Facebook group. I get it a lot when I discuss, you know, Christians in politics in the public space, like on other Facebook groups that are outside of our Christian Libertarian group. And inevitably, there's just a lot of confusion about terminology. There's a lot of confusion about when those things apply, who was Jesus talking to when he said that we were to take care of the poor. There's a whole host of like questions. And what we want to do in this conversation between Norman and me is let you listen in on our thoughts on how exactly should Christian libertarians think about this issue of social justice. So Norman, what do you think of when you think of social justice? I mean, is this a term that just has like no meaning because everybody, it just means all good things that make us feel good? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts? Well, certainly the term has gotten just really muddy and, and it just continues to get weirder with the passage of time. I, I think there was perhaps a an unfortunate occurrence that has, that has happened with the term insofar as that we take these two good words, being social and having justice, throw them together, and then suddenly now we have a rather stark problem. Uh, because what I certainly am, uh, observe in my sojourns through this weird and crazy world at times is that social justice to a lot of people means – uh, essentially, not not the not the true equitable treatment of people through the meeting of justice, through appropriate visions of law, and and the way that we treat other people, um, just from a from a, a a simple rights standpoint, and that we just also treat other people the way we like to, we would want to be treated as per the golden rule. So I'm, I'm talking about two sides of that that coin that we've spoken about in the past, right? But it, it it so often means that now that there is a uh, an additional positive right that people are entitled to on the basis of some type of identification that they make about themselves. 
And that could be in, in any one of a variety of things, whether it's race or gender or sexuality or uh, even social status, whether or not you are you know, rich, poor, or middle class. And there's any host of things that people are using to try and, and kind of abscond away with a, a certain form of treatment that must be handed over to them at the point of a gun, essentially at the point of the state in order to get what they want. And it's, uh, it's unfortunately it's now in many respects, social justice to me is, is kind of, it, it is both diminishing being social and diminishing justice. So now we're, we're getting to the point where the idea of, uh, of social justice as a term is, is like, is actually degrading civilization in so many respects. And that's kind of scary when you think about it. But this is not, you know, just even merely a liberal slash conservative issue per se. This, this happens uh, across the board. It's, I mean, this is something that, you know, whenever you kind of start getting into these sort of entitlements mentality, well, you're, you're kind of entering into that type of mentality to make these demands upon other people. Well, and I think to think of the the mentality that some people have, I mean, you're describing the phenomenon that's happening with an, a misapplication or a misunderstanding of real social justice, which is kind of a neither, really. Like, it's neither social nor just in the way that you're describing has sort of run rampant in, number of, in a number of ways, not entirely. Uh, there are good things happening and people are doing justice and they are doing what I might call, what we might call genuine social justice. But the politicalization of it has made it just, it, you're right, it's like a, this murky, like this is run amok kind of thing. But to the, to the average person who talks about this, I mean, our listeners are going to be engaged in conversation with people who will probably give lip service to, oh, yeah, I believe in social justice. Uh, and what, what most individuals probably mean is this general, if they're not just talking about feelings, they're talking about actual, you know, action, is they think about like benevolence or compassion and that like, oh, well, yeah, I don't think there should be homeless people or they'll go one step further and they'll say that I think everyone's, you know, basic needs of shelter and food should be, you know, just be guaranteed. Um, I'm not going to use the word free because I think even the left knows that it's not free, although apparently Democratic candidates don't. <laughs> yeah. um, like most people who are, who are I'm going to give benefit of the doubt here, they know it's not quote unquote free, like everyone pays for something, but they mean guaranteed by society at large. And we, we realize that, that someone's paying for it, the taxpayer, the wealthy, whatever. So they, they just want these feelings of benevolence or compassion to sort of like take over, right? You ask somebody who's a little bit more engaged, maybe they're an activist, maybe they're in charge of a public or, or private you know, institution, or maybe they're a politician, and they're going to use a little bit more terms like uh, common good or economic distribution, or they might say an equitable society. It really is going to depend on whom you're talking to as to what their comprehension and what their understanding of social justice is. So let me let me read the UN definition. Social justice may be broadly understood to be the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Social justice is not possible without the strong and cohesive redistributive policies conceived and implemented by public agencies. Whew, that just like, oh, that it's just a, makes quite a mouthful. And well, it is. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, fine. The fair and compassionate distribution of fruits of economic growth. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, well, okay, that's not 
so objectionable until you realize and who what is their saying it. Of fair and compassionate is you right, know. <laughs> and who determines what's fair and compassionate, and at what at what cost, and at what in what method, and like you. Okay, so when you hear a person saying that, you might think, oh, I mean, I could conceive of a libertarian sort of saying something like, you know, the fair and compassionate distribution of fruits of economic growth, and do some sort of like Deirdre McCluskey, Hans Rosling. Here's the hockey stick graph, and here's how that the you know the poor are better off. Well, yeah, and that's kind of the point, right? Yeah, because because you know, in capitalism, fair the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth means that people are able to engage in free trade with one another. Yeah, and that when they and when they do that, they're exchanging value for value, and so it is inherently fair. They, in fact, it's not, it, it's a reversal of values in the sense of that what you're receiving, you value more than that which you got rid of. So yeah, it's both yeah. fair and compassionate because both people are getting what they want. Right. <laughs> but that's not what these people mean oftentimes. No. And, you know, and the, the broader point at the moment is that, you know, who's saying that statement? Well, it's the UN. Well, of course yeah, of they're course going they're to say that. <laughs> they are, their interest is in self-preservation so that there is a semblance of control and order that they get to dictate or get to kind they're, of they're just trying to get it more centralized <laughs> yeah so here's a yeah they are so here is a here's a definition by a sojourners uh, so sojo.net so this is like the organization that's like really identifies as the christian left i mean if there's your jim you know, wallace types your jim wallace types in fact this is his his organization uh, yeah uh, th- so there was a writer who wrote and i didn't write down the name of it but uh, i'll put it in the show notes page uh but this was this was her this was her definition. The principle of social justice, according to Catholic social teaching, requires the individual Christian to act in an organized manner with others, to hold social institutions accountable, whether government or private, to the common good. And I'm thinking, amen, every yeah, libertarian. Okay, it's like, sure. <laughs> orga- act in an organized manner to hold social institutions accountable. I mean, hello, we, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is like, like, yeah. We, we like that on some level, sure. And then she goes on, the common good comprises the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily, according to Pope John Paul VI. Uh, However, social justice can become hollow if it is not constantly in touch with real people's experiences. So that's just in an article titled, What the Heck is Social Justice? on Sojourner's (laughs) website. Uh, Because, you know, that is a question. It's like, well, what do people mean by it? So I think one thing that I would recommend that we always do when we have this conversation with people about social justice is, what do you mean by it? What is this outcome you might be looking for? And how exactly do you believe we're going to achieve this? And again, I always want to bring this question up. What do you mean by we? Uh, yeah, yeah. We could go, I wrote an article years ago that I think still stands very well is that we could mean a whole lot of things. Yep. Um, and I think that might be a good pivotal thing to talk about. Like what what are we, and I'm going to use this term to kind of pivot to this concept of social, uh, the social aspect of this social justice. One thing that libertarians get wrongly criticized about is being overly concerned with individuals and individual, like overly individualistic. And there is a method to understanding society as a bunch of individuals who have human have individual agency. And in one sense, that's like really important to libertarians. At the same time, you read a book like Mises is human action and you read 
like what is it like a thousand pages and like yeah. probably on every on every page it's all about cooperation and working together like of all the political beliefs on all the spectrums that we could think of the, you know or measurements or whatever libertarians really shouldn't have the reputation that we don't think about the social order or that we don't think about working together and cooperating. Like everybody who criticizes capitalism from a really hard left perspective is all about capitalism is all about, you know, dog eat dog world, et cetera, et cetera. And we libertarians are like, wait a second, that's not what we're talking about. So it, there they is lost there touch is, with reality there. <laughs> yeah, they have, or they, it's just convenient for their argumentation. And, and for people who do argue this whole dog eat dog, you know, social Darwinism, et cetera, uh, yeah, that's just, that's just not what we, you know, kind of envision with, with, uh, with what libertarianism is. So how does that relate to, how does that relate to the gospel? How does that relate to Christians thinking about justice? Well, the question, what do you mean by we, I think is really important as a Christian question. And of course it's important as a libertarian question. When we read the new Testament, we read that, Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. These are Jesus's words. He came to, he healed those who were sick. And in a much larger level, Israel was looking for a Messiah to liberate them. And there was a very social nature to the gospel message and to what Jesus was doing. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who we uh, indirectly interviewed for this podcast a few episodes ago was his phrase is that the gospel uh, is inherently about putting the world to rights. That is what God's mission is to do is, and through Jesus, God is doing that. And so libertarians and Christians agree that humans are social creatures and that it is an important question for us to ask, how do we work together? And what is our relationship with each other, especially, you know, people who are like complete strangers? Because that question comes up when we have very large societies. It comes up when you have smaller societies too, but it's much easier to have that sort of familial aspect when like it's a third cousin you're dealing with to get, you know, at, at the market. Um, so when you're dealing with large societies, we have to ask this question, well, what, how do we live together? So I think that in some, my, my kind of point here would be like, if you don't have a theology of how strangers relate to one another, which is kind of, it's kind of a political philosophy here, uh, you don't really have a complete Christian worldview. And what I want to you know, make an important claim here, and this is important to understand, libertarianism is not a comprehensive worldview. But I would argue, I think Norm would agree here, is that libertarianism properly understood, provides an important piece to a Christian worldview. And that is, and that's just one manifestation of, of describing it. We can call it libertarianism. We could call it freedom. We could call it, you know, there's, there's a number of words that we could use there, but it incorporates the view of treating, loving your neighbor as yourself. How do we live together? And what, you know, maybe we could come up with a name for that sort of uh, sub theology, you know, along the lines of soteriology and <laughs> eschatology and all that. Maybe we need to come up with something, Norm. But I would say this Christianity is inherently for the good of the world. And as such, it's inherently compatible with a political philosophy that also enables and encourages human flourishing by way of the nonviolent ethic of Jesus. Definitely. Yeah. So when we consider our mission, to evangelize and think about the eternal well-being of the world, that includes now. So we have to do theology that incorporates this public aspect of it. 
Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. Doug, since it is important for Christians to think about these things at a deep level, it does raise the question about what role, if any, that the state should play at all. I mean, for one thing, we could just ask from a very general sense, and does good governance at all require the state? Uh, I mean, we could sit, we could ask, shouldn't, shouldn't human flourishing or promoting the common good be the goal of good government? I mean, that's, that's something we could ask. Uh, there's a variety of ways in which the, the Bible talks about government. And we've, we've addressed that in many respects here. Um, so better, better, perhaps we should, we can ask it in this way. Like, well, how could government, if it should exist at all, enable the best human flourishing possible? I would say they just need to get out of the way. Well, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously that's the the hardcore anarchist position, but you can be a minarchist and and sort of say that as well. It's like there there's a small role for the state to enable human flourishing or the common good. Or, or we can even be more generic in in our in our sense. Yeah. Like if if there's to be any uh, if there's to be any structures around us that provide a form of order. I mean, we whether that's um, and let's just be you know, super generalized here from kind of the polycentric legal perspective, even. And if you're not familiar with that word, that's okay. Uh, you know, listeners, but for, for any structure that's around us, it could be considered governance. Um, and let's, and let's presuppose that this is a, that, well, let's actually, we don't even have to presuppose anything about it. What we should say from the outset is that this, whatever that structure is should be enabling or at least not hindering human flourishing. The problem when you start inserting the state into that is that the moment you put a monopolization of force, people who have power over others in such a way that they can force others to do what they want against their own will and not in the sense of self-defense, of a protection of one's rights at that point. Once you enter into that, they have the power to do whatever they want, you're automatically reducing the, the possibility of human flourishing because suddenly there's no equity anymore. People are not on the same playing field even when you think about it because now there are people who have special privileges of position, those who have the power to tell you what you can and cannot do by virtue only of their position in, in, in whatever society that you're in at the time. So from a very fundamental perspective, the moment that you insert the state into it, that is the monopolization of force, you end up actually inherently reducing the possibility of human flourishing. One way I think of it is that if Norman, you and I don't live near each other, but if we did and we both decided that there was a threat, you, me, and our 30 neighbors, um, and you know, just think just generally here – 
you know, in a sort of a theoretical, we could pull together our resources and decide we need to get some sort of common defense. Okay. And in that regard, we have formed a very small institution, some sort of social institution where we have basically outsourced or delegated our authority to someone else to actually perform services. And that is not very far from what Frederick Bastiat kind of describes as the, if people have a right to individually defend themselves uh, and defend their property, then they have a right to come together and do that kind of thing. Sure. And the question that comes up to my mind, that to me means that there is a way in which we can think about things like social justice and still ask the question or still get to the answer, well, we can pull together our resources and do things. The problem that, and question that kind of comes up for me is like, well, how big can we get? Is it my, me, you, me, and our 30 other neighbors? So now we've got 32 households in a neighborhood. Does it mean we have 32,000 households? I mean, at what point is the pooling together of resources actually useful uh, or you get to the whole like diminishing returns and you get to the situation you just described, which is this is not doing anybody any good at all, or it's really diminishing human flourishing. So we do, we do work together and we can flourish together and we can have a common good, but at some point it's not scalable to a 300 million person level or for the UN for that matter. Well, Doug, there's, there's another way to kind of think about this. You you described the the question as requiring a kind of scalability answer as to, okay, is it 30 people? Is it 30,000? But really the, the way we can answer that question is, is this. The numbers don't matter. You can go as big or as small as you want. The question is whether or not you're instigating aggression in the process. If you have 10 people who get together and decide that they're going to band together for some type of, of self-defense purpose, but then they suddenly realize that they can start taking other people's stuff around them. And be, and then what we would call, we call that a mafia. Right. Right. But when we, <laughs> right. It can still be a great, it, it could be non-scalable at the number of 10, yeah. not 10,000. Yeah, but, right, yeah. but if 30,000 people do it, we suddenly say, well, now this is a legitimate government. <laughs> So you see, you see the problem here yeah, is, that, yeah. is that this is not really a problem of numbers, but a problem of principles. Yeah. And so once we enter into this mode of thinking, then, then suddenly the opportunities arise for any number of types of arrangements that make sense. Yeah. So long as they don't end up encroaching upon rights of other people and, and in, in this type of manner. This uh, illustration reminds me of a, I think it was some sort of like cartoon or sketch or something a couple, couple of years ago. It was one of the founding fathers or people who are observing the founding fathers sign the declar or the, the constitution and put it into effect, you know, came out to a farmer who was just out there and was like, Hey, we, we formed a government We're we're the United States now. And the farmer basically was like, Oh, we'll have fun with that. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't part of this and <laughs> Oh, I hope it works well for you. Like, Oh no, you're part of it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think it went that far uh, in the cartoon, yeah. but it was just like, it was like, uh, yeah, this, this states the, this is sort of the state of affairs. Like yeah. we, we know that not every single person in the United States that e even when it's founding, you know, came together and decided, Hey, here's what we're going to do. I mean, it's, there's, there's an, yeah. Corporate decision-making is, is a whole other topic, but that was a little, little fun aside yeah. uh, that, that reminded me of. Um, so when you think about the problem of, 
and and we can we can probably I mean we have gone into episodes about this, uh, but when you think about the sort of situation we just described, where you have people wanting to come together and you know have common defense or rescue, ambulance services, fire services, police, things like that, the state isn't the only answer. Uh, what are some of the other? What are in in brief? What are some of the other things that come to mind for you? Like, well, we could do it this way. Well, there's any number of ways that to address needs of the common good, if you will. And there are, I mean, a good one that we often neglect because it's often very painful for us. And I, I can regale you with stories of, of my own experiences in this, but it's like insurance, for instance, is a, is a way in which uh, you can essentially come up with a pooled way of, of dealing with resources uh, to help deal with high impact scenarios that have uh, low frequencies. I mean, that's kind of the idea of insurance in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And most people kind of forget about this and, and don't, re- don't realize that that's really what it's supposed to be for. And, and instead think about insurance as being some form of prepaid medical care or whatnot. And, and so there, there's a problem in that. But, you know, insurance is a way that we can deal with it. But there are, even with that, if you don't have the ability to have insurance, there's always been ways of, of garnering help for oneself uh, via via the acts of private charity. And we do this still even now, despite the fact that we have you know so much wealth being absconded away with by our by our government that I mean, yet we still are prosperous enough where private charity is a major function of uh, of our society even now. But even that, it's not the only option either. I mean, there there's any number of ways uh, uh, that society can work these things out. I mean, eventually we want to get to the point where we're just so we're producing at such a high level that it, that it becomes harder and harder to just be poor. I mean, I, I know it's, it may sound a little callous on some level, but but the whole point is that like right now we could even say that those who are who are uh, in poverty now still live better off than those who had were in poverty say in the 16th century, for instance. Like we're actually we're actually substantially improving that, and we're and we're getting rid of poverty even faster now than we were a hundred years ago and two hundred years ago, and so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, and and I'll just chime in on the potential callousness of, Na- of Norman's <laughs> I say <it> loose <laughs> comment and say basically just because we're saying things, just because we claim and which is true that the state of the poor overall is getting better doesn't mean that the state of the poor is good and that they are doing well. Okay. So they are doing better than before. In fact, I would even say that they're doing better than the middle class. If there was such a thing in the 16th century, not just the poor. So, you know, even, you know, uh, the Rockefellers of, you know, a hundred years ago uh, didn't have some of the things that everybody has now. And the, the point there is this, one of the things that gets, kind of kind of stops the conversation when people who are sort of against socialized forms of social justice forms in, that are like all government organized oftentimes people who are against that will say things like well Jesus didn't say that the government should provide these things which is absolutely true full stop the problem is in the rhetorical conversation is that when you say that it immediately makes people think, oh, so you just think that the church, like individuals in churches should do all of this. And you know what? There is uh, not enough money going through churches' hands to to take care of all the needs that we have. And 
I would even be willing. I don't know if that's quite true. I would be willing to grant that for the sake of the conversation and say, oh, well, sure. But that's not the only thing. Do you realize how much less charity we've needed in the past 30 years? I mean, I, I, I maybe I shouldn't say this, but like I don't remember seeing on TV anytime recently the commercials I saw as a kid talking about sponsoring kids who live on less than a dollar a day. Um, that number was over half of the population of the global population 30 years ago. And that number right now is like under a billion. So we're dealing with a tremendous amount of market progress that has eliminated absolute destitute poverty. And so there is an, there's this third option, and libertarians like to call it the free market. And when there are sound institutions that, with private property protected, it enables people. And this is where you know, you can make the minarchist argument for there is a government that enables people and protects people's property, and therefore there is flourishing, or there is more flourishing than, it, than there was when those institutions didn't exist. So you think of countries that are developing, and they institute property rights, they institute free markets, and all of a sudden, in India in the last 10 years, you have 171 million people now no longer in poverty. 171 million that's more than the number of people who voted in the last U.S. election. And that's incredible to think about. Yeah, like think about that and number it has here. nothing to do with the activity of the state. Well, well okay. if it does at all, and I, right, if it does at all, it's basically that the state got, it got better in the sense that like it was less corrupt or it instituted better property rights or it had more formal, you know, ways of protecting things. Like it basically got out of the way of people doing capitalist acts between consenting adults. Okay. So that is what it did is it got out of the way of doing that. Now I'm not going to, again, we can get into like all the details of the numbers and like some other episode in the future, which is not really the point here. My point here is that when we get into these arguments with people and we say that private charity couldn't cover the needs that people have, well, what about all the needs that people have that are being covered by the market that are being covered by new apps that allow us to do things and connect and fundraise? Like, oh my gosh, this whole like attitude of like, oh, people shouldn't have to do a GoFundMe account because they got hit in a car accident and their insurance had lapsed and they didn't know it or something like that. And I'm like thinking, okay, so like 30 years ago, there was nothing. They were just out. And now <laughs> yeah. they, and now they're social networking. That's free. Okay. And now they can ask people for money. Like, why is this a bad thing? Like, I understand the one on the one side, the concern is like, oh, that shouldn't happen. Well, yeah, I want to say that too. But like, oh my goodness, the options are so much better. So don't get into the trap of private charity is the only other option and the benevolence of individuals, you know, together. There are so many innovative options out there that, you know, you can go to the scripture and say, hey, Jesus wanted us whoever we are, right? So Jesus wanted us to come together and serve the poor and do things. Well, that's great. That is totally true. But us coming together on the market is doing that. And here's what's really cool in my mind is sometimes you're actually partnering with people who don't even know it and they are serving the Lord, so to speak, by providing needs for the poor uh, and by providing better opportunity for those who are on the margins. So some people are caring about the poor in the way that Jesus wanted them to, and they don't even know it. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't claim that that's what it's for. But you have this market institution. And of course, if you're a libertarian for more than five minutes, you already champion the free market. And so you kind of know what I'm talking about. But I think that's a really, really important aspect to this. And learning how to explain that on the fly to people like 
you know, like your, your neighbor down the street or the random guy you meet in the grocery store or whatnot. And that's, that's a challenge. And, and we encourage you to, to, you know, work out your own way of, of talking about it. And hopefully we're helping you to do that even now, but just recognize that that comes with some practice too. Thinking about these things beforehand is part of what we're doing here with this, uh, with this podcast even. Um, But you know, that's up to you to decide how you're going to go with it at that point. I think we could summarize this whole conversation. Um, you know, we talked about social justice and we kind of use that as a sounding board for like, how do we think about the world in which strangers relate to one another? And I think Christians do have to examine what is our theology about that because it is it is critical for how we reach other people with the gospel because, like I said earlier, eternity starts now and how we relate to one another is is important. It was clear in, in the message of Jesus that how we treat one another, both as Christians and then how we treat the world in love, is, is a measure of how the kingdom is going. And it does begin with this idea that, I mean, as Jesus said, you know, treat others the way you wanted to be treated. And remembering the, you know, the question asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And, uh, and the way that, that Jesus explains that in the form of the parable is important. That's kind of the starting point. But there's other things we got to think about, too. Yeah. We have to explain that. I mean, we write books about these topics. So we shouldn't just start. We can start there, but we shouldn't end there. Yeah. I was, I'm listening to the, the New Testament on audiobook right now. And yesterday, no, it was this morning, actually, of this recording. Uh, it was the, the phrase in, or the, the passage in Mark that was, the rulers of this world try to lord it yeah. over others, and that is not so with you. And so, Greg Boyd, who wrote "Myth of a Christian Nation" and uh, "Myth of a Christian Religion," I mean, he talks about this all the time. The mo of the church is uh, power under, rather than the mo of the state or government or or could be anybody is power over, lording yeah. over other people. And so, what we what our mo should be is adopting power under love peaceful, non-coercive, things that drive us to serve others rather than dominate over them. So what does a thorough Christian theology look like? Well, we think it starts with non-aggression principle. And of course, we have principles that extrapolate from that. And I think that's an important way to start conversations like, wait a second, all you social justice people, if you're having this conversation with people, all you social justice people talk about nonviolence and following Jesus, but Good grief, you really want to outsource what you want to accomplish to the institution whose role in society can only be accomplished through violence. There is no consent. Uh, there is no right of exit in, in a number of ways for you know some of the some of the programs these people want to incorporate. And you have to ask them, like, what gives here? And so you can have the conversation in that direction, like, okay, fine, we want to have all these good things and and we want the poor to be taken care of, great, but why are you going to this institution right now to do this? And so, you know, you can you can have that conversation starting there. Don't get stuck in the sort of like charity versus welfare dichotomy. That's probably not a good strategy to use. Uh, use data to support markets, lifting people out of poverty. If you go to humanprogress.org, that is a project of the Cato Institute. It is like an amazing website to look up resources. And 
because I've had this. Someone's like, oh, well, of course, uh, you know, that's funded by rich billionaires who want people to think that the world is going well. Nope. All of their data is from the World Bank. (laughs) Um, And it's not it's not like they're just making up this data. Like most of the site is data driven and uh, an explanation of it. It's not dry and boring. There are a few there are articles that can become that way because they're really, really lengthy. But there, there's just a ton it's of data there. Quite exciting. Uh, if you want to go to Dan's really, so. look at it. Oh, it is. It, it really is. It's like one of my favorite sites, humanprogress.org. Uh, so, you know, s- start that. Um, and if <laughs> this, this is, I'm, I'm saying this mostly tongue in cheek, but I've said this many times before. Like, if really all that the person you're talking to wants is some sort of like prevent people from being destitute and the government to build the roads, we're dealing with Be sure that's literally really all 89% they want. smaller. <laughs> If that's really right, right. If they're like, listen, hey, you know what? You can have the roads. Good. That's like 2% of the of the federal budget. Okay. Transportation and infrastructure. If you want your super small social safety net, okay, fine. Like then, but yeah. you have so to now we're at 11%. Else. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. If that's really what you think the government should be, because like I will, I will basically, I mean, they won't even make the roads argument. But they'll they'll say things like infrastructure, whatever, like safety net programs and stuff like that. I'm like, all right, fine. Safety net programs are about nine percent of the federal budget. All right, so we've just reduced the budget by eighty nine percent, two percent and nine percent for for those two things. Uh, let's get started. And once we've really done that, we can debate over this now <laughs> new one hundred. The yeah. rest of the budget. So okay, so I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but I kind of want to make a more serious point, which is don't get hung up on welfare programs and roads. <laughs> okay. There is where a way bigger fish to fry. Um, and I think that, and here's a, another thought that just kind of occurred to me is like, Oh my goodness, the 9% safety net programs of the federal, that 9% number is already crowding out yeah. private charity in ways that would. And so can you imagine if we had an even bigger state operating those kinds of things. <laughs> you are going to take away, you are going to take away people's ability to choose and bless others with their wealth. And, and I use wealth not as in like big numbers, but wealth as in like whatever they own, their their property, their energy, whatever. They you're robbing them, not just their money, but you're robbing them of the experience of being benevolent, of being charitable and compassionate. There you go. So should Christians care about social justice? Well, yes, we can embrace that. But we need to care what real social and real justice is when we put those together and what is really social, what is really just. And I think if we do, we examine and really work at our theology and our and our rhetoric, we can communicate that social justice is important. It's just probably not what most people kind of think. And so we can have that conversation. And I think we have, we have all kinds of, resources on our side. We sure do. So there's, there's so many things that we, we have to learn uh, in, in, in both the way that we explain our, our beliefs and also in the way that which we can persuade other people. And so we hope in this episode that we've given you some ideas and thoughts about how to go about uh, talking to your friends and, and neighbors and family about these things and having an impact. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.